Good morning, Christ Church. It's good to be with you this morning. If you could, I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. That's where we'll be looking this morning. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. And again, it is good to be with you. My name is Jared Alcantara. I'm a professor at Trinity, not too far from this church. I want to thank Pastor Mike and for the whole staff here at Christ Church. It's an honor and a joy and a privilege to be with you. We're in Luke 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. Luke 12, 13 through 21. I invite you to read silently as I read it aloud. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, Your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is God's word. You know, it starts at an early age, this propensity to be possessed by what we possess, this temptation uh, towards self-sufficiency and independence. It's something in our makeup, something in our culture, something in us that wants to be tight-fisted with what we have, who, that wants to be independent. One of the reasons I know this is because I have a two-year-old daughter whose favorite word is mine. <laughs> mine. He says it over and over again, mine. I remember hearing a story about a mother and a daughter, and the mother was trying to teach her daughter about giving. So she told her daughter, she said, "Uh, I'm going to put a dollar here and a quarter there, and when we go to church this morning, I want you to take both the dollar and the quarter, and I want you to decide what you're going to give in the offering plate. So service took place, and they were driving home, and... The mother asked the daughter, so which one did you put in? Did you put in the dollar or the quarter? And the daughter said, well, I knew that I was supposed to put in the dollar and I was going to put it in, but then the pastor said that God loves a cheerful giver and I decided it would make me more cheerful to put the quarter in instead. (laughs) See, it starts at an early age, this tendency to hold on, to be tight-fisted, with what we have. Uh, But Jesus wants to challenge us. 
Jesus, I think, wants to make us feel uncomfortable. And I think that's okay. It makes us feel uncomfortable to to talk about these things and to hear what Jesus has to teach here. It makes us feel uncomfortable because in a lot of ways it undercuts the society in which we're built. It uh, undercuts the foundations of the society. Uh, It makes us feel uncomfortable because it challenges and confronts our relationship to ourselves and to our stuff. It makes us feel uncomfortable because it, it pushes back against that tendency to hold on. But I think it's okay that Jesus wants to make us feel uncomfortable. I remember a quote from Gardner Taylor, who's a well-known pastor in the black church. Gardner Taylor used to say that God is not out to make us comfortable, but conformable to the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus wants to expose a darkness within us, a a covetousness or an idolatry within us. Jesus wants to bring to the surface uh, something about us that is out of fix, that is out of congruence with who God is and the values and principles of the kingdom of God. Jesus not only wants to do it in us, Jesus wants to do it in this particular individual who comes to him in Luke chapter 12. Now, just to set the scene, it says in verse 1 that thousands of people had gathered around Jesus to hear what he had to say, so much so that they were trampling on one another. So Jesus first speaks to his disciples and is teaching his disciples, and then someone interjects in verse 13. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is an acceptable thing to do in the ancient world. Someone is bringing a problem, a dispute, before a rabbi and asking the rabbi to intervene, to to settle the dispute. There's a good chance that this is a younger brother. The older brother in this society and in so many societies, even today, was the executor of the estate. And this younger brother is unhappy with the way the older brother has gone about the business of dividing the inheritance. And so this man says to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But rather than solving the man's problem, Jesus is interested in exposing a deeper issue. Jesus wants to get at the heart issue that's underneath the surface of this man's request. So Jesus says to him, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you, which is another way of saying, I'm not interested in solving this particular dispute. I'm interested in going deeper. Uh, underneath the surface of what this dispute is really about. Jesus not only has something to teach this man, but he has something to teach everyone. Notice in verse 15, it says that he said to them, he said to everybody in the crowd, including the disciples who had given up everything to follow him. And this is the warning Jesus has in verse 15. He says, watch out. Some of you might have, beware. Be on your guard, look at this phrase, against all kinds of greed. Notice that Jesus says all kinds of greed. See, there are many things about which we're greedy. That word greed actually is the word covetousness. Some translations have the word avarice. The Spanish translation of the Bible has avaricia. Uh, Avarice means to covet or to crave. See, there are many things that we covet and that we crave. 
Jesus wants to make clear to us that our life is about more than that, that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. That's the end of verse 15. Life is more significant than that. Jesus wants to shift us to an eternal perspective, not only on our things, but on ourselves. Jesus wants us to be able to see clearly again that life is bigger than what this man has preoccupied himself with. And so Jesus tells a story. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to retell it as if it were taking place in 21st century America. This is based loosely on a similar retelling I heard by John Ortberg. It's a story about a really busy guy. Uh, This person was consumed by his work, gave every waking moment to his work, gave his life to his work, and it would take his life to do it. Uh, He worked 12 to 14-hour days. He was the vice president of a computer software company. Uh, He was part of all of the right organizations. He was on the board of directors of many other organizations in order to expand his contacts. This guy was a networker. Whenever he was not at work, he found his mind drifting toward work so that work not only became his occupation but his preoccupation. Now, life was not well in every corner for this particular individual. He and his wife were uh, passing each other on the downslope of a marriage. She always seemed to be telling him that he had a family to take care of and that she had needs that weren't being met, but if she only understood the stress that he was under. He was vaguely aware that his kids were growing up without him, and they always seemed to be complaining about books they wanted to read and games they wanted to play, but after enough books not read and games not played, they stopped complaining because they stopped expecting. I don't know what their problem is, he'd say, when he would feel guilty, I'm doing it all for them. Uh, He decided on one particular occasion that he would give himself with more devotion and attention to people in his life who really cared about him in six months or so when things settled down. That was one of his favorite phrases, when things settled down. Uh, But even though this was a smart individual, this man in Jesus' story, he never really seemed to realize that things never seemed to settle down. Uh, One evening, it was about one o'clock in the morning, he woke up and felt a strange twinge in his chest, and his wife ordered uh, an appointment at the doctor the next day, and the doctor explained to him that he had actually had a mild heart attack. All the warning signs were there, uh, high cholesterol, elevated blood pressure, working too hard, and the doctor explained to him that he was going to have to make some major changes. He was going to have to change his eating habits and change his working regimen and uh, make a regular commitment to exercise. And for a while, that's what he did. He ate better, he worked less, he uh, gave more time to the people in his life, he exercised more. Now, all of that changed on one particular day when he got a phone call. Another vice president of the computer software company that he worked for explained to him that there was a major company that was interested in a merger, interested in buying out their company. And the person explained to him on the phone that if they played their cards right and did the right sorts of things in order to facilitate this merger, that they could be on the beaches in Cancun by Christmas. But then he explained to him that if they didn't do it right, if they didn't give themselves to this project that they could be out of business in six months. 
So the man thought about it for a moment and he thought to himself, well, my health is getting better and I'm doing a lot better. The blood tests are a lot better. My family is happier. Uh, There'll be time to get back to those things when things settle down. So he said yes. And from that waking moment, this man was like a man consumed. He spent every waking moment devoted to this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Every waking moment to the complete overhaul of the company. Then it hit him. He knew what to do. He he would single-handedly usher in a technological and structural revolution so significant that the board of directors on this company would have to say yes to this merger. And that night, he got home and he was all excited. He said to his wife, you know what this means, don't you? After I get through with this project, we can relax. We can send the kids to the schools that they wanted to go to and we can go on all the vacations that we wanted to go to, uh, go on. Uh, we will finally have financial security. We'll, we'll, we will be able to say, you have plenty of good laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But she'd heard that song before, so she knew not to get her hopes up. About 11 o'clock rolled around that evening, and she said, I'm, I'm going up to bed. Do you want to come up? And He said, no, no, I've got a little more work to do. He had his papers strewn at the kitchen table, strewn across the table. And he said, you go ahead and go up. I'll be up soon. So she went up to bed. A couple hours passed, and she woke up and turned, and he wasn't there in bed with her. And she thought to herself, this is ridiculous. He's like a small child. He'd rather fall asleep downstairs than come up and go to bed. So she walked down the stairs, walked into the kitchen, and there he was with his head resting on the table with his papers strewn everywhere. And she said to him, all right, honey, it's three o'clock in the morning. It's time to get up. She went over uh, to touch him on the shoulder, but he didn't respond. His skin was cold to the touch. She had this panicky feeling in the pit of her stomach, and she called 911, but by the time they got there to check him out, uh, her worst fears were realized. They explained to her that he had had a massive heart attack and that he had been dead for hours. Now, this death was a major news story in the financial community. His obituary was written up in the Wall Street Journal and in Business Weekly and You know, it's a shame he was dead because it sure would have been nice to have heard what they wrote about him. Lots of people came out to this memorial service. People from far and wide came to celebrate this man's achievements. Uh, One person after another got up to eulogize him. One person got up and said, "Uh, you should have seen him at business meetings. He was in a class of his own when casting vision for the company. Another person got up and said he was a leader, a civic leader in the community. He did all kinds of important projects, not only for his business, but for the community. Another person got up, and another person got up. And after the memorial service was over, they all went out to the cemetery in order to commemorate him. And they built a memorial, uh, a memorial statue for him, one that was larger than all the rest. And they wrote inspiring words on it, words that they would choose to summarize his life. Words like entrepreneur, uh, innovator, visionary, networker, success. And then they built a memorial And then they all went home. But when it was dark, 
and no one was around to observe. Unseen, unheard, came the angel of God uh, to that cemetery. And he made his way through all the graves and arrived at the grave of this man. It was there that the angel traced with a finger uh, the one word God chose to summarize this man's life. You know what the word was? Fool. You fool, God said. Now that's a strong word. Jesus is using strong language here to describe this person. But that is precisely the word that Jesus uses in Luke 12, verse 20. God said to him, you fool. The only other time Jesus uses this word to describe a person is when he describes a Pharisee who cleans the outside of the cup, but for whom the inside of the cup is full of wickedness and greed. So Jesus doesn't just use this word all the time. But you see, what other word can you use to describe a person who thinks through every contingency, who covers every base, who considers every possible scenario, yet fails to plan for the most inevitable event in human existence? One day, one day, he would die. When Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this parable, he said that for this man, this man's mistake was that he allowed the means by which he lived to outdistance the end for which he lived. Another commentator says that this man was so busy building his own kingdom that he didn't have time for the kingdom of God, so busy making a living that he didn't have time to make a life. And God stands amazed that in all of this man's accounting that he would fail to account for his own soul. He neglected his life, or he invested his life in what he could not keep to the neglect of his soul. Many years ago, a play came out on Broadway called Tonight in Samarkand. And in this play, there's a servant of a grand estate. The servant goes in to the village and he happens upon a woman whom he believes to be death itself. She's blonde, she's wearing a neckerchief, she has a raincoat on, but he is certain that it is death itself. So he flees the village, goes back to the grand estate, says to the lord of the estate, uh, I must flee, I have seen death itself, give me your swiftest horse, I must leave this place at once. And just as the servant is leaving, the master says to the servant, to where will you flee? The servant says, I flee to Samarkand. Uh, The master of the estate goes into the village later that afternoon and happens upon this same woman, this blonde woman with a raincoat and a neckerchief, and says to her, uh, why is it that you frightened my servant earlier today? He He has fleed and he is gone from here. And the woman replies, I, I did not mean to frighten him. I was just surprised to see him, for he and I have a date later tonight in Samarkand. See, death comes to us all. We must decide whether we will be a people 
who live in light of eternity or who only live for the here and now. Now, I might not be an expert on some of these things, but, but last time I checked, death percentages in the world are holding steady at 100%. And so God says to him, you fool, this, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, the fundamental problem with this man in the parable is that he's preoccupied with himself. He can't really see beyond himself. You know, there's 53 words in this parable, and 18 of them are either I, my, mine, or myself. When the Lord says to him, this night your life will be demanded from you, that's verse 20. That word demanded is a financial term. It was so often used when bankers were calling in loans from debtors. It is as if God is saying to this man, uh, your life, that very thing which has been on loan to you, I'm, I'm calling it in. It's time to go. This is also part of a larger theme in Luke's gospel, this theme that at one point it will be too late. So see, in Luke 14, Jesus teaches about a narrow door and a wide door, and at one point the narrow door will be closed so that it will be too late for people to enter it. Jesus tells the parable of a grand wedding banquet, and people are invited, and they make excuses one after another after another, make excuses for why they cannot come to the banquet, and eventually the one who organizes the banquet, the Lord of the banquet, rescinds the invitation. Later on in Luke 16, there's a parable of a rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man lives in luxury, and uh, Lazarus lives in poverty, and when they face judgment, the tables are turned, and the rich man is separated from Lazarus and pleads that he might be able to enter Abraham's bosom. But there's a time when it is too late to make a change. There's a time when it's too late to reallocate one's investments. So the Lord says, you fool. (laughs) This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? So we've got to ask the question, once, once we've arrived at financial security, once we've received the ultimate promotion... Uh, In my case, once I've got enough diplomas on the wall or books that have been written, uh, once you finally have it, then what? Is it worth the loss of a marriage? Is it worth kids growing up without knowing you? Is it worth gaining the whole world yet losing your soul? There's a story of a young man and an old man, and the young man is ambitious, and the way the story goes, the old man is wise and learned. And the young man says to the old man, I will build my business. And the old man says, and then? And he says, I will build my fortune. And the old man says, and then? And he says, well, I will grow old and retire and live on my money. And the old man says, and then? And the young man says, well, I suppose that someday I will die. The old man replies, and then? So you've got to ask that question. You've got to ask that eternal question about what you're giving your life to. Are you giving your life to things that don't matter and won't last, or are you giving your life to something more significant than that? See, at the end of the day, in the final analysis, there are only two things that will last. God 
and people. So what are you giving your life to? I remember hearing another story about uh, an older couple, and the man, it says in the story, was quite greedy, and he explained to his wife that when he died, he wanted to be, he wanted to be buried with his money. <laughs> and he pressed, and he prodded, and he pushed, and eventually, reluctantly, she promised that she would honor his request. So the time came for the funeral, and they were at the cemetery, and just before they were to close the casket, she took a box, and she placed the box in the casket, and then they closed it. And uh, one of her friends who knew about this arrangement said, that's not what I think it is, is it? Don't tell me that you put all that money in there with that person. And the woman said, I made a promise, but don't worry, I wrote him a check. (laughs) 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 See, you can't take it with you, can you? You'll never see a man buried with his money. Uh, You'll never see a woman buried with her stock portfolio. You'll never see someone buried with their diplomas. As the old saying goes, you'll never see a hearse pulling a (laughs) U-Haul. Because you can't take it with you, can you? Jesus wants to bring light into the shadows of our hearts. Jesus wants to expose something in us that has this tendency to be possessed by what we possess, to give ourselves over to all kinds of covetousness. Jesus wants us to remember that life is about more than that, that life does not consist in the abundance of what we possess. See, Alexander McLaren puts it this way. He says, it is not what we possess, but who we are that matters to God. But Jesus has one more thing to teach us. I want you to look at verse 21. There's a warning here, but I think there's also an implicit command. Jesus says, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Yes, it's a warning. Yes, it's a caution. But I think also it's an implicit command that you and I must strive to be rich toward God. Now, I don't think Jesus is just talking about our tithe here. Actually, it says in Luke 11, verse 42, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees because they give God the tithe, but they neglect justice and the love of God. God is not so much interested in our money as he's interested in us. Interested in whether or not we, out of gratitude to him, will be loose-handed rather than tight-fisted. Not just with what we possess, but with who we are. Let me just share a couple of reminders with you. Reminders that I think might be helpful, especially on a difficult subject like this one, one that makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, The first reminder is this. You don't need to be rich to be greedy. See, I've met people who are rich who are greedy, and I've met people who aren't rich who are greedy. It's really about our hearts and whether or not our hearts beat for the things God's heart beats for. Does it matter your socioeconomic status if your heart clings so much so 
that it becomes idolatrous, then you struggle with greed. So you don't have to be rich to be greedy, and the second reminder is a lot like it. You don't have to be rich to be generous. Back in Mark chapter 12, Jesus commends a poor widow who just puts in two copper coins. Jesus says, this woman has given more than all of the rest in the temple treasury. He honors her commitment to open up her hands to God. Way back when, when my wife Jennifer and I were dating, um, we were dating long distance. I was in school. Uh, she was a kindergarten teacher. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you go in thinking that you have a minor car repair and you find out that it's three to five times more expensive than you were planning it to be. Well, this happened to my wife Jen with her car. And Uh, She found out that she needed new brake drums and new tires and that it was going to be $600, which was a lot of money for us. So she shared this need, this prayer request with her small group. And a couple of days passed. And one day after school, people from her small group uh, came to the school where she worked. And they brought with them an envelope. And in the envelope was a gift certificate. And the gift certificate says, good for two brake drums and four tires. And enclosed with it was a check. But there's an asterisk there, and it says, some restrictions apply. Read the fine print. So let me read just a portion of what the fine print says. In light of our responsibility as your brother and sister in Christ and in service to God, we do hereby take on some of your burdens. See Galatians 6, verse 2. We give you this gift freely, with no obligations. You must agree not to repay us or feel any obligation other than those we already have in Christ. All we ask is that you use this money however you will and that you will be blessed. So you don't need to have a lot to have a heart that beats for the things that God's heart beats for. All you need to do is to be a person who says, Lord, I open up my hands to you. I give my whole life to you. The call to the crowd in Luke 12 is a a clarion call. It's a trumpet blast. It's a call that Jesus not only makes to this man and to the disciples and to the crowd, but to all of us. And it's simple. Uh, Empty your barns. (laughs) Empty your barns of false illusions of self-sufficiency and independence. Uh, Empty your barns of the temptation to throw your life away on things that don't matter and won't last. Uh, Empty your barns of the false belief that you really possess anything and are not just a steward with what God has given you. Now, I think there's a motivation that runs deeper than all of these things. It's implicit in the parable rather than explicit, but I think it bears worth mentioning. It also undercuts our tendency to try harder and to do better and make sure to get it right this time. See, when we remember just who it was who told this story, who shared this parable, when we remember just who it was who had this to teach us, we remember this very important thing. Jesus emptied his barns so that we could empty ours. Think about it for a moment. Way back 
way back before time began to run and the sun began to shine, uh, way back then, God decided uh, to open up his hands to us through Jesus. God in Jesus Christ traded down so that we could trade up. God in Jesus Christ gave himself up, emptied himself, it says in Philippians 2, so that we could be filled. God in Jesus Christ was gracious to us. God in Jesus Christ empowers and enables us to no longer be tight-fisted but open-handed, to no longer be gripped by greed but to be gripped by grace. See, Jesus is greater than our greed. Jesus is greater than anything that could possess us. It's to him that we give honor and praise because he emptied his barns for us so that we could empty our barns for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We love you and we praise you. You have been so gracious to us. Where would we be were it not for your mercy? Where would we be were it not for your love? Thank you for emptying your barns in Jesus. For laying it all down for us. Help us to to remember and to be gripped by the reality that you are greater than our greed, that you are better than anything that could grip us. We love you. We praise you. Thank you that your grace flowed down all the way from heaven and met us and changed us and gave us new life. We love you for it. We thank you for it. Help us to open wide our hands back to you out of gratitude for you opening wide your hands to us in Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen.